are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergatinos. And we're picking up this evening on page 353 and paragraph number four down towards the bottom of the page. If you remember, we've been talking about the things that can be a source of temptation that lead to a kind of instability in one's life uh, or one's chosen vocation, uh, one's residence, that uh, there are certain temptations that come to us in life, maybe simply because of the difficulties or the rigors of our life or the individuals with whom we live that can become a source of temptation for us. Uh, that lead us to become discouraged and make us want to, to change our external environments, thinking that we can live a holier life uh, in different circumstances and in a different place. And so the fathers are going to address this for us in a number of different ways here this evening, as well as in the following uh, hypothesis. And uh, but it's all again rich, rich and beautiful material and rooted as always deeply in the scriptures. So again, paragraph number four on page 353. An elder said, just as a tree which is continually transplanted cannot bear fruit, so the monk who moves from place to place cannot produce fruit, virtue, I'm sorry. So, you know, one of, again, one of the great challenges for us is that when we begin to experience temptations or trials, things that put our virtues to the test, uh, we can look at them simply as obstacles to holiness rather than the very means to holiness for us. Uh, it's particularly through the, the trials and the difficulties, the crosses that we bear in day-to-day -day life that we are lifted up in regard to the life of virtue. Uh, just as we're lifted up on the cross of these things, so we are lifted up in, in regards to our virtue of patience, of faith, of humility. And, uh, and so we don't want to give way to immediate uh, uh, you know, emotion, I think, in the sense of wanting to free ourselves uh, from the trials and the sufferings we're undergoing. I think that that's the natural response for us is to withdraw and want to withdraw or to convince ourselves to rationalize, uh, not only that a different place, but I think the fathers have in mind here uh, to prematurely move to a, a greater solitude. And uh, their great warning to us in these pages is that solitude is only prepared for uh, exactly through trials having undergone them throughout the course of the years where our virtues have been perfected, where our hearts have been purified, then do we have the capacity to enter into the life of greater solitude uh, and be able to discern what's going on within our hearts with a greater clarity? Uh, to live alone and to engage in the spiritual battle can be a dangerous thing. And uh, we can, um, not see how we're being tested and uh, and so uh, fall away from virtue altogether. Number five, a Cenobitic monk once bothered by thoughts of leaving his community, and so he confessed his thoughts to the abbot. The latter said to him, go and stay in your cell and make your body secure within the cell as a stronghold and never depart from there 
leaving your mind to think whatever it wants. And so to make oneself a stronghold and that this is the place where you are to do battle, uh, it's only in fleeing this do you leave, lose the protection that you gain through fidelity to your commitment to God and to the rule. And for all of us, I think we would want to read uh, cell here as the human heart, that this is where our struggle is as Christians, this interiorized monasticism that we are to engage in, where we struggle with our own thoughts and temptations that they come to us. And if we stay within our cell, uh, within, within the heart, and there do battle, uh, that's where victory comes to us. It's when we begin to turn outside of ourselves, looking for something that will either satisfy uh, uh, on uh, a physical level or uh, an emotional level, or even on a spiritual level. We begin to look outside of the heart for something that's going to draw us closer to God rather than looking within where God dwells. And uh, so what is being said uh, to the monks here is true for us in our day-to-day -day life. And uh, from moment to moment is where the, the struggle is to be found. Number six, an elder said, a monk's cell is the furnace of Babylon in which the three youths found the son of God. And it is the pillar of cloud from which God spoke to Moses. So it is a place of purification. Uh, using this image of Meshach, Shadrach, Shadrach, and Abednego being thrown into uh, the fiery furnace. And they're encountering uh, one like a son of God, I think the text says. So they're encountering Christ. And that we are to see in this event are entering into uh, our heart as if it is a furnace and allowing there our, our vices and, and our weaknesses to be purified by the, the trials and the experiences that we undergo daily. But it's also a place uh, that is compared to the pillar of cloud where God spoke to Moses. It's here again within the heart, uh, within the silence, uh, if we remain there, that we encounter God as he is in himself. We allow God to speak to us in the very depths of our being. And so our challenge is not to let ourselves to be driven out in trial uh, in order then that our hearts might be purified and there would be no impediment to our hearing the, the truth or the love which God seeks to main, make known to us. A brother passed nine years being tempted to leave his community, and every day he prepared his cloak for his departure. But when it grew late, he would say to himself, tomorrow I will leave this place. But at dawn, he would say, let us compel ourselves to persevere this day for the Lord's sake. When he had passed nine years in this way, God relieved him from every temptation. So setting himself uh, like a flint, you know, making himself unmovable uh, through engaging uh, the thoughts in this particular way of not wrestling with them so much as uh, seeing them for what they are, that they are temptation and that will pass with the passing of each day. And so it was enough to say, tomorrow I will leave and com commit oneself to stay where one is at that moment. And that's where the battle is to be won. In, again, in the moment, and we've often talked about this, not in the past, in our uh, resentments or our disappointments, nor in the future, our expectation of the unexpected or of the miserable or of potential crosses, but in the moment that this is where we meet God. And that is in our joys and in our sorrows and in our solitude or in our engagement with others. And we need to look no further. And we don't need to go to the desert. 
but uh, we need to remain, as it were, in the desert of our own, own hearts. Any comments so far on this little section before we move on to St. Ephraim? Pretty clear and to the point. From St. Ephraim the Syrian, O monk, do not say, here there is affliction and conflict, but elsewhere there will be respite and freedom from care. Tell me if you know who it is that wars against us. Is it not our enemy, the devil? Listen then to what is said in the book of Job. And the Lord said to the devil, whence comest thou? And the devil said before the Lord, I am come from going through the world and walking about the whole earth. Know then that the world is greater than you and that wherever so, wheresoever you may go, there is no place under the sky where the common enemy has not set foot. Remain in the place to which you are called and resist the devil, and thereby he will free from you. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Woe to the soul in which there entered unbelief, lack of fear of God, ignorance, foolishness, impudence, I'm sorry, imprudent, impudence, I'm sorry, that was right, and this, this soul will become a portion for foxes. So what a beautiful, from the Syrian, all the Syriac writers, as I've mentioned before, uh, not only speak the truth so beautifully, but in this kind of poetic form, both uh, Ephraim and Isaac the Syrian in particular, just write so beautifully that this image from the book of Job, I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak of it in quite the, this way before, uh, especially focusing in on the Lord questioning uh, Satan, where, you know, where have you been? What have you been doing? And searching throughout the world. And Ephraim unpacks this for us in saying that uh, we should see and embrace the truth of this, that there is no place under the sun that we can go where the devil has not been. And uh, where we think that we can avoid his wiles that he will afflict us wherever we might live. And so staying put allows us uh, to develop a kind of internal stability on an emotional and spiritual level, that our ability to discern uh, begins to grow as our purity of heart begins to grow. And so as we battle and as we let go, of or have our passions let go of their grip of us, we begin to see things with greater light. Uh, as we've allowed ourselves, as the previous paragraph said, to be purified by the furnace and so illuminated by God and his word of truth, then we're able to enter into that battle uh, with greater ease. Uh, our constant shifting from place to place always keeps us living on the surface. Uh, and we can see this uh, even in terms of our talking to someone for spiritual counsel, with, or like a spiritual director, or uh, also in analytic work and therapeutic work, that it never serves us well to move from person to person. More often than not, we are searching for someone to tell us what we want to hear and uh, rather than someone who's going to speak the truth to us. But if we move from you know, spiritual father to spiritual father or from therapist to therapist, we're always going to, to uh, be thinking about things on the surface level. You know, what's going on in our day-to-day -day life, the superficial aspects, if you will, uh, or the surface aspects of our life, but never really get to what is going on on a deeper level, the underlying and sometimes unconscious narrative, uh, but also the underlying actions of the evil one to begin to see certain patterns, the way certain uh, passions are inflamed within us. It's that stability uh, of remaining where we are and listening to God in the midst of these circumstances that we gain, we grow in wisdom and understanding. 
On the contrary, he writes, blessed is the soul in which fear of God and piety dwell. He who is not content to be the servant of one Lord will be the servant of many. He who cannot endure submitting to one abbot will be subject to many abbots in diverse places. Again, what a wonderful bit of wisdom that when we resist humbling ourselves or being obedient to someone who has responsibility for us, and if we flee from that, we will find ourselves suddenly being uh, under the, the uh, responsibility of many and having to submit to many, whether it's an abbot or somebody else within the world being subject and serving many rather than one. And so things become far more difficult for us. You know, one, when we flee one cross, often the one that we find uh, is far greater than the one that we are, were carrying. And so he says, Holy Scripture says, a man who wisheth to separate from friends seeketh an excuse, but at all times he will be liable to reproach. Exactly the same happens with the monk who separates from the brotherhood and abandons his monastery. He thinks that the abbot and the brothers are at fault. In spite of his rationalizations, however, such a monk will never be able to escape the censure that comes from God and reasonable men. And so always looking for an excuse uh, to free oneself from the charge of the day and uh, from the charge of engaging uh, with and living with others and doing so with love and humility. And uh, part of us can want to uh, leave these circumstances and we will find uh, many ways to rationalize why it would be better for us to do so. Uh, but uh, we, in looking to the scripture, have to reproach ourselves in this regard. Uh, do not make easy excuses for yourself uh, in wanting uh, to leave where you're, where you're living. About such a monk, Holy Scripture says, there is a way which seemeth to be right with men, but the ends of it reach to the depths of Hades. And the sacred writer continues, a bold-hearted man shall be filled with these ways. If you observe money problems in the monastery where you live and you cannot obtain your bodily necessities, do not abandon the place of your repentance, for it is then that you have much work to do there. The holy abbot is not pleasing to the impious, nor does injustice satisfy a just man. And so the ways of God are not the ways of, of the world. And so our initial response to things, the way that we would rationalize things or interpret them are not necessarily going to be the way that God uh, leads us in this life. That God isn't immediately going to lead us out, out of things that uh, might bring us suffering or trial. And the example here is a good one. If you're in a monastery that is struggling and so you are having to deal with want, uh, even in terms of your basic necessities, uh, not to, to get up and flee to a place where you can experience greater comfort. It may be that providentially you're there or experiencing uh, want for a particular reason, uh, to humble you, to form the mind and the heart, that it might have a greater trust in the providence of God from moment to moment. And, uh, and so uh, his last little saying here, the holy abbot is not pleasing to the impious. So if you find yourself living with a holy abbot, you're not necessarily going to like him. Uh, in fact, you might find him to be more irritating than anything. It's never an easy thing to live with a saint. And, uh, and so those who are being drawn along the path to holiness might experience great resentment 
uh, of those who are in their charge, especially if they are saintly figures and they live a holy life and they aren't driven by their passions. Again, their very patience and their gentleness might become something that becomes the source of irritation for one who's always irritated. Because if you're always irritated, you want those around you to be irritated too, to join, you know, to, to commiserate uh, with you. And uh, there's something that's very seductive about that. That's why we vent. You know, we want somebody to hear what we're going through. And I, you know, I'm not, I don't want to demonize that. I think there's something about uh, having a trusted confidant where we can do that. But often we, you know, we, we will be griping constantly about things and we are looking for a specific response. And so if you're living with a holy abbot who uh, does not respond with irritation or counsels patience, you, you can imagine that might become something that uh, would be very difficult to, to, to deal with over the course of time. And, you know, ultimately, and we only need to look to Christ, the, the most innocent one, you know, becomes one who's judged as a heretic and lawbreaker and, uh, and judged with such severity that he's to be uh, executed in the most horrendous way, to be crucified. Okay, any comments on this section from St. Ephraim? So a lot of things there, I think, again, when we can pull it out of the desert for us. And again, you know, I've been reading this little book by Boniface Lux, and he was the founder of an Eastern Rite Monastery in California, Redwood, California, called Holy Transfiguration. And uh, he wrote this book called Eastern Monasticism and the Future of the Church. And, uh, you know, what, what he talks about in regards to Eastern monasticism is, is the unique way that Eastern Christians look at it, that the church is a monastic church and the spirituality is monastic, whether it's for a person who's called specifically into the monastery or is living in the world, that we are to interiorize it. Because monasticism and monastic spirituality arises out of the gospel and the desire to live the gospel fully. It emerges out of the time when Christianity uh, had been accepted by the culture and then had already begun to sl slip into lukewarmness, decadence, and corruption. And so uh, it's then that these uh, men flee to the desert in order uh, to engage in that spiritual battle, uh, a kind of white martyrdom. And, uh, and so in the East, you know, it's, it's not, you know, a different spirituality for every person. We're all called to engage in the same battle, the same call to holiness, uh, radical call to holiness, and the ultimate goal of it, which is deification, to allow ourselves to be conformed to Christ. And so it's important for us, I think, to, to move these writings out of this cell in the desert to the, the cell within the heart and allow the city then to be our desert. This is where we are to engage in our battle. Let's see, there is a comment here from Anthony. I suggest that the various revolutions, including the American, were designed to uproot a stable society. The mass migrations of the late 1800s and 1900s were caused by socialist governments displacing their peasants. This uprooted stability and, and is a root of our mental and moral afflictions today. An interesting thought. You know, I think certainly we see a, a kind of radical instability uh, within the culture today and the world today. And Solzhenitsyn, you know, talked a lot about this in his writing. And if you've ever had the opportunity to read the address that he gave at Harvard University, it's uh, prophetic in so many different ways. Uh, I 
can't even stress uh, uh, enough why it's worth reading it. So if you have the opportunity, go online after the group and search Solzhenitsyn Harvard address and at least bookmark it to read it because it's superb. But, you know, uh, Boniface looks, who I mentioned, brings Solzhenitsyn up in, in his work as well and saying that, you know, the Eastern monasticism uh, that is so important for the life of the world and the life of the church. And this is why John Paul II really moved to, uh, to address their codes of can canon law uh, in order that the Eastern rites might preserve the fullness of their tradition, in particular, the monastic traditions, uh, because this is what gives stability to the life of the church. It becomes, um, what is it when you're, you're constantly looking to the point that brings perspective? I'm trying to find the word. Uh, Somebody help me out here. In any any case, it becomes. Somebody have something here for me. I see Louise typing. Yeah, focus, focal point, not vanishing point, because that would mean it would be disappearing. Something that we we turn to over and over again that brings us back to where we need that gives us the perspective that we need. So the the spiritual life of the monastics, this pursuit. Uh, at all costs, uh, to live the gospel as perfectly as, as possible, of setting aside everything, it becomes for us this constant reminder of that we, what we have already now, and that we should be choosing it above all things. We already have the pearl great price. We know what it is. And it's the monastics who draw us back uh, by this life committed to pursue that and that alone. And so, you know, this destabilizing of the culture can, and of, of the world itself can come about for any number of reasons, including the ones that you just mentioned. Uh, but within the life of the church, uh, the, these monastic writings and the monastic life as a whole uh, become essential for us in keeping our focus on what is true, what is real. It keeps us focused upon God and what endures and what is already present in our midst. And, uh, you know, it's interesting, he talks about uh, the West often responding to the very immediate needs that arose in the culture. And uh, especially in, in the counter-reformation, that the, the Reformation emerges, it destabilizes everything within the culture and within the life of the church. And so you see this emergence of all of these individual religious communities that have this specific purpose. Things move to the horizontal level out of necessity. They react to what's going on within the world and within the life of the church. And he says, you know, this bores, you know, some fruit certainly, and that we can acknowledge the goodness that came of it. But it was also something that undermined the, this, what had existed for, you know, uh, a thousand years before that, more than a thousand years before that, in terms of this uh, understanding of monastic spirituality and what it's rooted in and how it does become this uh, uh, aspect of the spiritual life that moors us, that grounds us in what is most important. And so even this spirituality and the charisms that arise that are meeting these very real needs during the counter-reformation, it, it does pull things on this to this horizontal level, all these things that needed to be done. Uh, uh, and uh, and so, again, he could recognize the goodness of it, but the, in the long term, he says that our view of monasticism changes, and, uh, and it's the East that holds on to that. But even as the East uh, experiences the secularization of the culture, that we're in danger of losing you know, the, what is fundamental to our identity as a whole, where Christ and the church and the gospel is no longer seen as something 
that is powerful and that shapes life and identity. And, uh, you know, I, I think it doesn't take a, a lot of soul searching or looking throughout the world to see, you know, that we're often driven more by the things going on in the world or the things that we think that we need to have in our life or that are essential for our identity that we show that we're, we, don't, we do not understand that we have already now what is essential for us. And this is part of what we, we need to take hold of. Uh, Anthony writes again, the Re Reformation was a symptom of society failing in its monastic vocation. That's, it's really well put. And I think uh, Boniface Looks would likely agree with you in that regard, that it had already begun to fall apart prior to this. Uh, and, uh, you know, encountering so many different things uh, throughout the world and uh, that uh, the West certainly long before the East and the East held on to it. But even now, he was he's concerned that it was breaking apart and he's passed away. This book, I think, was written in the uh, mid 90s and. Uh, I think things have gone much further than he would have even imagined. Okay, so that brings us to the end of that, this hypothesis. And we'll move on now to the next, that for those who are not prepared, it is perilous to live alone. And so all of this groundwork has been laid to say, if we have not uh, prepared our hearts, if we've not engaged in this battle, uh, that it can be a dangerous thing to live alone. From the Gerontocon, a brother abandoned the world and took up the monastic schema. Forthwith, he shut himself up in his cell saying, I'm an anchorite. When the elders heard of this, they went and threw him out of his cell. They had him go round to the cells of the monks, make a prostration and say, forgive me for I'm not an anchorite but a beginner. So it seems rather harsh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I think, you know, it's put before us, I think, in with perfect clarity in the first paragraph that you cannot claim for yourself, I'm an anchorite, uh, th that it's meaningless. Uh, and, uh, and so in order to preserve this this monk, they make him go around and prostrate himself. You know, what I've said was a profound untruth and that I'm not an anchorite, but rather a novice. I'm just, I'm just beginning. And uh, again, I think when we, we think of our own spiritual lives, uh, you know, no matter how much we read of the fathers, you know, that we want to be very ca cautious, you know, that in so many different ways, we find out again and again that we are beginners, no matter how we've struggled and the things that we've come to see about ourselves, our pride, you know, uh, how we're driven by so many of the different passions that when we feel that we've uh, have risen above them, then some deeper element, it's like pulling back the pieces of an onion, then all of a sudden you see it manifest itself again and you think, oh my goodness, I was completely blind to this and is still very much present and maybe even in a, in a worse form than I imagined. Uh, but something gave rise to it that a lot, you know, God allowed me to see it or allowed me to be tested in a way or have my patience put to the test in a way that it had never been before. And we may have gone through multiple trials and tribulations that really deepened that virtue for us. Uh, but we, we can't think for a moment that, that it's necessarily been perfected, that there can be something that we just not, have not experienced that might be less than those trials in terms of how painful they are in terms of the tribulation, but they give rise to an anger, a pride that is so powerful that it can be surprising to us where we have to think, oh my gosh, you know, I never experienced this before in all my years. 
And, you know, I've joked before about uh, road rage, but, you know, when you never drive and I was, you know, I think I meant my car is 14 years old and I have 30 some thousand miles on it. That gives you sort of an idea of how much driving I've done over the years. And uh, most of most of the time, it was a couple miles a week, you know, going to the grocery store or something like that. But all of a sudden, when you find yourself driving a lot and back and forth around town through traffic and uh, construction, you find yourself being put to the test. You know, people whipping out in front of you or you're driving around in circles just trying to find your way out of construction. And, and it's in a way that it doubles the length of your trip. And then all of a sudden you ha you're having thoughts that you never, you know, imagined yourself having. And that's just over something like driving. And uh, I think when we're put to the test in a more personal way with people and with a different kind of patience, then something even stronger emerges for us. Number two, an elder was asked how a man could live alone, and he replied, unless an athlete spars with many people, he cannot learn the art of victory, so as to be able in this way to engage his opponent in a one-to-one -one combat. Likewise, unless the monk is trained with others and learns the art of dealing with his thoughts, he cannot live by himself or withstand the assaults of his thoughts. So it's interesting, you know, the idea of sparring, like in boxing, that, uh, you know, when boxers are preparing to battle against a different opponent, they'll try to max him, ma uh, match him up with a sparring partner that has the style of his future opponent so that he might uh, be well prepared. And so he, he compares this then to what goes on within the monastery that, you know, are dealing with different individuals, different personalities, characters, and dealing with the thoughts that arise in our minds and our hearts whenever we engage them prepares us to en enter into this kind of spiritual warfare when the thoughts besiege us. And uh, so, you know, if we're dealing with only one person all the time, ourselves, you know, we might be wholly unprepared, you know, when, <laughs> when we, you know, are thrust into a situation uh, uh, that we find difficult to deal with. And I can't remember which philosopher said it, but the, he said that hell is other people. <laughs> You know, as the sort of the introvert's uh, motto, I think, you know, the idea of uh, Sartre, Louise, thank you, that, uh, you know, our experience of others can really force us out of this comfort zone uh, that uh, seclusion and solitude can give us. And so you can begin to see why the monks would not rush into this way of life. That again, the, the Cenobium was the place where one would learn the ABCs of the monastic life and maybe live that for, for decades upon decades before one would uh, even ask to, about embracing a life of greater solitude. And even only then through the guidance of the spiritual elder be led to it. And, uh, and, but yet for all of these reasons, you know, that this is, this is where the real training takes place. And I think this is helpful for us in our day-to-day -day life, because we often will get frustrated with ourselves when we find ourselves embattled, or when we find our patients being put to the test at work or at home, and we think that we are failing in some measure or that the others around us are an inconvenience and things such as that, when in reality, this is part of our spiritual battle and our perf being perfected in the life of virtue. It is the furnace for us. And to learn not to see it as an obstacle uh, 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 or uh, you know, something that is going to trip us up, but rather a stepping stone. And I think it can alter the way then that we engage in our day-to-day -day life as well as our relationship with others.
Abba Theodore said, many in these days choose to rest before God grants this to them. And so there are many already in this time when Theodore is writing that would want to rest from that labor prematurely, would want to uh, go to a life of greater seclusion or solitude and uh, without having formed the virtues and without also realizing that moving into solitude is not going to be the end of the spiritual battle. It's simply taking it to another level uh, where one engages in this, you know, silent battle and this, you know, attempt to keep one's thoughts fixed fully upon God. Uh, St. Therese of Lisieux forced herself to hang out with the most annoying nun in the convent in order to confront her impatience and find deeper loving kindness. Exactly. I think one of the things was so one of the nuns splashing her with when they were doing the wash and uh, and treating, you know, treating her with a kind of patience. And uh, I don't know, I think there was an elderly nun, too, that was really you know, mean to her as well, and that where she would made it her purpose, I think, to guide her along the steps with with a little lantern, and uh, and you know, it often can be the irascible ones that we would want to avoid, rather than you know, to allow ourselves to wonder or to look beyond that surface demeanor you know, and to ask ourselves, where might that be coming from? Or maybe more importantly, how, how is it that God would want me to respond to this or enter into this? And um, what might, you know, diffuse it? And how might love sort of alter this relationship? From Abba Isaiah. Abba Isaiah said, if the mind desires to ascend the cross before the infirmity of the senses has come to be stopped through asceticism, the wrath of God comes upon this man from beginning a task beyond his capacity, since he has not yet cured his senses. For if our Lord Jesus Christ had not first healed all of the sufferings of mankind, for whose sake he came into the world, he would not have ascended the cross. For he says before his crucifixion, go and show John again those things which ye do hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor, uh, the gospel is preached. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Now, John, in baptizing our Lord, shows that he who comes forward to become a servant of God must first confess his own misdeeds. They were all baptized of John, confessing their sins. The Lord Jesus did many other miracles, but from those which we have mentioned, we have learned the following. This is one of these extraordinary uh, sections of the writings of the fathers where we see their immersion in the scriptures and the, the truth that, emerge, that, that emerges from their meditation in regards to the spiritual life. And so Isaiah writes, the blind receive their sight. He who has his attention turned towards the hope of this world is blind. But if he abandons this temporal hope and turns his attention toward the hope for which we wait, such a man already regains his sight. And so you begin to see what Isaiah is doing here. All the things that our Lord sends uh, John's disciples back to tell him is that, that, that are taking place, we are to see as uh, taking place or needing to take place within our own life uh, to allow ourselves to be healed. The lame walk shows that he who longs for God, but at the same time cherishes the carnal thoughts of his heart, is lame. However, he who forsakes these thoughts and loves God with his whole heart, he now walks upright. And so 
you know, we are often made lame by our attachment to carnal thoughts and the things that are of this world. By the deaf here, we are taught that he who is distracted is deaf from the cap captivity of his thoughts and from spiritual forgetfulness, but that he, if he uses his time for spiritual knowledge, then he regains his hearing. So if we uh, are attentive to our thoughts and do not allow them to distract us, and we do focus upon the spiritual knowledge that comes through the ascetic life, through prayer, through reading the lives and writings of the saints, through reading the scriptures, then our hearing returns to us. We're able to hear the truth and embrace it. The lepers are cleansed means that as it is written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not enter the house of the Lord unclean. A leper is anyone who has enmity, hatred, jealousy, or condemnation towards his neighbor. But if he abandons all this, he is cleansed. So in one paragraph, we are shown the labor, the toil that we are to engage in, in the spiritual life and where it is laid out also for us within the scripture. Uh, uh, so we're shown the toil, but also the path to healing for us. And the focus, again, is not out there. It's within, within the human heart. So it prevents us from moving towards this kind of activism in the spiritual life. And uh, this is one of the temptations, not that we aren't to respond in love and charity to those in, in need. We are. You know, our love is to become concrete, but it can only emerge truly when the heart has been purified and we can see the things uh, as God sees them. And so address them in the way that he desires them to be addressed. To the extent then that the blind man regains his sight, the lame man walks, the deaf man hears, and the leper is cleansed, a man who has died on account of these during a time of negligence is raised up and renewed. Hereafter, he proclaims to his senses, which were deprived of holy virtues, the good news that he sees again, is walking, hears, and has been cleansed. This is the confession which you, too, gave to him who sponsored you in the monastic life. That is, that you would live in all hardship and humility. About St. John the Forerunner, it is written that his clothing was camel's hair and the like. This signifies the hardship which must first cleanse a man and which subsequently ensures that he comes to the cross. So the toil and the hardship that we engage in, and this is the even more challenging thing, the toil and the hardship that we engage in in order simply to come to see the things that we need to see and to hear the th things that we need to hear and to walk the way that we need to walk, are all meant then to bring us to the cross, to be able to ascend the cross as Christ ascended the cross. So we aren't looking for some kind of spiritual perfection that leads us to a place of nirvana, of this kind of peace, you know, in this world. You know, our asceticism is meant to bring us a kind of freedom that we might take up what Christ came into this world to embrace and take up or be raised up to embrace. And that, that is the cross, to love in a selfless, self-emptying fashion. And so he writes, for the cross is a sign of future immortality since it first stops the mouths of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees, that is, symbolize wickedness, hypocrisy, and vainglory, while the Sadducees symbolize unbelief and a lack of hope in God. As Holy Scripture relates, Jesus stopped the mouths of the Pharisees and Sadducees, and after they durst not ask Jesus any question at all, and he, he sent Peter and John to prepare the Passover. 
The allegorical meaning of this passage shows that when the mind sees that it is not dominated by anything, it then prepares itself for immortality, making the senses focus on this thought, making them a single entity and nurturing them. They now partake inseparably from the mind and remain united to it. So Christ silences all the voices of hypocrisy, wickedness, and vainglory, as well as lack of hope. So the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrected life, are all silenced. They, they dare not bring a question to him. For all of us, this symbolizes our engaging in this spiritual battle to overcome these very same passions, wickedness, hypocrisy, vainglory, and to open our minds and our hearts to hope in the promises of God and the immortality that he holds out to us. And it is then that the mind and the heart, when we hold on to these things, is prepared for what God intends for us. Any thoughts before I, I move on to the next challenging paragraph? Okay. Later, as scripture says, Jesus prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me at this hour. The allegorical meaning of this for us is that if the mind wishes to ascend the cross, it needs much prayer to God and many tears. It must submit to God at every moment, calling upon his goodness to assist it, that it might be strengthened and preserved until it is raised up to the new, holy, invincible life. So we are brought to that place where Christ is in the garden, where he has to give his full assent to the Father's will, uh, even though he cannot see the fruit that it will bear, and he sweats blood. Uh, that he's brought to this state where, uh, you know, his, he becomes prayer and his very body manifested, al already manifest his embrace of the Father's will uh, and of what will be made manifest in the cross, where he will pour himself out completely in love for the world. Because for the mind, there is a great danger at the time of the cross, the great testing. That is, when one prays, this means that one has need of Peter, James, and John, of sound faith like Peter, courageous hope like James, and perfect love like John, so that he may be able thereby to draw down grace from on high and ascend the cross. All these things happened to our master Christ, who was an example for us in every way, as the apostle says, in order that we might know the power of his resurrection and experience his sufferings, so that we, like him, might attain to the resurrection from the dead, so that we are called to walk the path that Christ himself walked. And so our asceticism isn't an end in itself and should not be seen as an end in itself. We're not trying to create this image and this religious identity for us. We are seeking what Christ sought, which is uh, to remove any impediment to saying yes to the Father's will uh, in order that we might accomplish his purpose, but also that we might be raised up to the fullness of life. But to be raised up to the fullness of life means first to be raised up on the cross. And this is precisely the, the, the step that we would want to skip. And I remember reading Fulton Sheen about uh, the Mount of Transfiguration and you know where uh, Christ is transformed transfigured in their midst, and, uh, and Peter blurts out, 
Master, it is good that we are here. Let us build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. You know, Peter wants to take that glory that is being made manifest on the Mount of Transfiguration and house it as something that can be used and put to purpose as one sees fit in this world and this side of Mount Calvary, whereas transfiguration is pointing to what the glory that is on the other side of the cross, precisely in, the prepare, in preparing them to make their way down the Mount of Transfiguration and make their way to Jerusalem, where then he will be lifted up upon the cross, and that they might be able to persevere and hold on to their hope even in the face of what they would, would witness. So Peter wanted to do what we do, you know, or would want to do, which is somehow take hold of what is going to make us impervious to suffering, to lift us up out of suffering, or to free us from those who, who cause us to suffer. Remember, these are the same men who said uh, about the Samaritans, Lord, should we bid fire come down and consume them, <laughs> you know, that, you know, the, the Lord is insulted, they felt by them. And their first thought is, let's burn them. Let's, you know, call down the fires of heaven. So they understood nothing of what uh, our Lord was speaking of and the, what needed to be burned away. Uh, what needed to happen was for them to enter into that furnace and allow their hearts to be purified of their passions. Now listen to how, how he perpetuates this reflection. The gall which Christ tasted is an indication for us to cast off every wicked desire from our souls, to close our mouths and not allow these desires to move beyond our bodies and thus be fulfilled. By the vinegar which he tasted for our salvation, we are taught that we should extinguish all insolence and vain disturbance. By the spitting which they inflicted on him, we are instructed that we must blot out every tendency to please men and all the glory of this world. Through the crown of thorns, we are trained to endure the mockery directed against us at every moment and to face various insults with unruffled patience. Again, this is why I think seminary should be a place where you just read the fathers. Uh, and uh, just in these few pages, if one were to take this through, for, for example, the season of Lent, and allowed this one section to be one's meditation that whole time, you would not exhaust it. I think you would be drawn into it more and more deeply. The reed with which they smote the head of Jesus for our salvation is also an example for us that we should always wear the helmet of humility so that we may crush all of the arrogance which the enemy inspires in us. The scourging which Jesus underwent before the crucifixion is an indication for us to despise all human disparagement and sarcasm by the fact that he remained undisturbed as they distributed uh, his garments, we are taught to disregard the vain things of this world in order that we may ascend the cross without distraction. The fact that he was crucified at the sixth hour is an example to strengthen us against all torpor and faint-heartedness until sin dies in our souls, as it is written, for through the cross he slew the enmity. So that we, you know, would so disregard the things of this world that we would be free to ascend the cross without distraction, that there would be nothing that would impede us from the embrace of the cross in our life. That that's the real temptation for us. And that we would remember the sixth hour so that we don't become faint-hearted when we are called uh, at that moment to take up the cross or allow ourselves to ascend it, that we don't lose our heart and yet press on until sin dies within the soul, that we continue to fight that fight. 
The fact that the ninth hour, in the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, teaches us that we should endure the affliction which the passions cause for us until they are quenched, so that henceforth we might obtain greater boldness before God and call upon him with humility. For the fact that he gave up his spirit after the sun grew dark, we learn that when the mind is freed from all hope of this visible world, it is a sign that sin has now died in a man. It is then that the veil of the temple was rent. That is, after the liberation of the mind from earthly and worldly things, the impediment between our minds and God vanishes. So anything that stands between the self and God, the veil that does not allow us to see the fullness of that love and mercy is rent. And if you remember the word revelation means exactly this, revelare, to pull back, to draw back the veil. And so our engaging in uh, allowing these things to be, uh, to remain in us and afflict us until they're quenched is our allowing ourselves to be brought to that point where we are truly able to see through experience and in reality the depth of the love and the mercy of God. Next, the rocks are split and the tombs are opened. This means that if that death of Jesus is wrought in us, then every material weight and blindness and all that weighs the soul down disappears and our deadened senses, which are made fruitful through spiritual death, are restored to health and raised up invincible. The fact that they wrapped Christ's body in a clean linen cloth and anointed it with sweet spices and signifies the sanctification with which the mind is clothed after that life-bearing death, it also signifies the incorruption in which the mind finds rest. So, you know, as we endure this crucifixion, this dying to the self and dying to the sin, then our senses become invincible to temptation. When the self and self-will uh, self-esteem are all set aside, then we can love as God loves, and there's nothing that can touch us, touch that, or pull us away from it. And then uh, we experience also an incorruption, incorruptibility of the mind, that no longer can the, 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 the intellect, the noose, be darkened, that it is perfectly illumined by the light of Christ. And then the final paragraph, the fact that they laid him in a new tomb in which no one had previously been placed and rolled a large stone before the door of the tomb shows that if the mind is delivered from all these things and passes through its own passion week, it enters into another new age, thinking new and incorrupt thoughts. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagle, eagles be gathered together. So an interesting thing. Uh, eagles, sometimes the word vultures are gathered uh, that were, uh, you know, where the body is. So when we undergo our own passion, then we enter into a new life. And so where there only seems to be corruption and death and where the uh, carrion birds are gathered, uh, for us, this is a source of hope because what they consume is that is our corruption. For, I'm sorry, according to the Holy Scripture, he arose in the glory of his father and ascended into the heavens and sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And passing on to us an indication of this, the apostle says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. 
set your affection on the things above, not on the things on the earth, for ye are dead. His holy name has the power to undertake the cure of our sickness, so that according to the measure of our spiritual poverty, we may leave our sins behind and find mercy together with those who are worthy of him. Amen. So in and through all of this, we are brought not in an abstract way uh, to this new life, but we are brought through the very passion itself in union with Christ, uh, experiencing all that he does in order that we also might experience the fullness of that life, that he's the first fruits of the resurrection. And we who are members of his body, who give our assent, our yes, will come to be raised along with him. So this is, this is extraordinary. I mean, this is one of the deepest meditations on the, the passion. Um, uh, you know, often in the Latin rite, we read the, and we do it in the Eastern rite too, but the passion is read on Palm Sunday and then again on Good Friday. And uh, in often no preaching takes place on those days that the passion is allowed to stand alone. And with that, I'm in agreement that uh, in the face of the passion, that silence is what is needed in order that one might listen on this deep level and allow oneself to be drawn into it. If there was one thing that I would read or that I would think that one could read after reading the passion, it would be this text because it does not diminish the hearing of the passion proclaimed. I think it only draws us more deeply into it and fills the heart with a desire to allow that to happen, to remove anything that would be an impediment. So any comments on anything from the night? Admittedly, this is a hard, hard section to comment on, because as you, you see, he ends it with amen. So it is like one long prayer. And I think that's how it's meant to be read and meditated upon. But hold on to this one, you know, make a note, a book and a, a notation in your journal, you know, come back to this during Holy Week. For your meditation. Okay, so when we close there, and I hope it was as fruitful for you as it was for me tonight. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.